all of a sudden things changed. It was over a period of time. Summer missions began that road for me when the summer missions coordinator said, Nick, I think you need to consider going to seminary. I was like, man, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) I am not going to seminary. And then I got back, and then my campus minister began encouraging me to consider going to seminary and encouraging me to consider what, what was the next step in my life. And, you know, I was adamant hotel, restaurant, and tourism administration was the direction that I was going. And then some friends began encouraging me and all of these different voices speaking into my life. And then a couple of other guys that, that I really enjoyed listening to preaching uh, that really kind of gave me a, a fire in my bones, so to speak. They moved me and encouraged me. The Holy Spirit moved me through these preachers that I would listen to, two in particular. And so it was through, through their ministry and through ministry my campus minister and, the, and the, the coordinator for summer missions and friends that I really sensed God was doing this new thing in me, in this new direction. I was discerning a new way forward. And I was discerning that I had to stop running from God when it came to my future plans, that even in my future plans, I needed to surrender those to the Lord Jesus. This morning, what I hope we see is that our journey towards spiritual maturity at times calls us to confront our past as we wrestle over our future. Confront our past as we wrestle over our future. I want us to see that from Genesis chapter 32. So I want to read the entirety of the chapter because it's a story that flows really well. And so I hope you are able to follow along, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 32. Follow along as I read. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, "We We came to your brother Esau, And he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and all the flocks and the herds, the camels, into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from, this, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that I may, he may come and attack me and the mothers and the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took as a present for his brother Esau 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between, or 
yeah, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? What are you, where are you going and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. There are presents sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he's behind us. Likewise, he instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. In verse 22, the same night he arose and took two wives, uh, took his two wives, his two female servants and 11 children and crossed the fort of Ajavik. He then, he took then, I'm sorry, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him and passed as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. In the first scene, verses 1 through 21, we're invited really to kind of look retrospectively, to look back with hindsight over Jacob's long road of spiritual growth. I mean, after all, Jacob has been through over the last 20 years, it's hard to imagine here and now that a more difficult journey still lies ahead of him. It's hard to imagine that this might be a reality for Jacob. He's embraced God's leading to return to Canaan, And in the midst of embracing embracing this leading to return to Canaan, he he doesn't have any idea what his brother Esau might do when he arrives there. You know, for Jacob, this day has always been down the road, right? 20 years ago, he left fleeing from his brother and his father. This day has, you know, been 20 years down the road. It's always been far away, but all of a sudden, he realizes this day has now come. He's going back into the land of promise. You know, initially the scene begins on a positive note. Jacob's made a break from Laban, his father-in-law, who has manipulated him and kind of kept him under his thumb for 20 years. He's journeying with his family. He's, he's profitable. His family, his flocks, his possessions are all with him as he's journeying back to the land of Canaan. And 20 years earlier when he was leaving the land, the angels of God met him at Bethel, right, in that theophany where he sees the stairway extending and from heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending and God speaks to him and reminds him of the promise. And now, as he enters back into the, the land of Canaan on his way there, angels meet him once again. And then he exclaims, the name of this camp is Mahanaim, it, two camps, God's camp and my camp, right? 
He sees this as significant. God is blessing him on his journey as he's even returning. And, you know, we have the benefit of looking on Jacob's story with hindsight this morning. And I think it's helpful, even in our own lives, to look on our faith journey with hindsight, to look back over the course of our spiritual journey and observe what God has done in our lives. It helps us. Because in doing that, we can even look back and see how God's grace has been present in our lives. As I think back over the journey of my Christian walk with Christ, I can see how God has transformed me. It's been a long process, and I certainly am not there yet. I haven't arrived. But I would imagine, like many of you, you can think back and be amazed at God's grace to you, how God has been so patient with you, God has been so patient with me in the midst of my sin and my stubbornness and my hard-headedness to get what he's teaching me. And in, in this time for Jacob, as he's coming to terms and dealing with the sins of his past, we notice how God has transformed Jacob. I mean, think about it. Jacob was a prideful man. He was arrogant. He was manipulative. He was deceitful and deceiving. His name means deceiver. And we see for Jacob that, as we kind of look back, we see that he's gone from being haughty to being humble. He's gone from, from being prideful and selfish to being humble. He sent messengers to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, or Edom, in verse 3, right? And notice the language he uses in verses 4 and 5. He says, tell, tell my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I've sent to tell my Lord that I might find favor in your sight. Right? This is the language of humility. It's not just him fearing for his life. He's humbling himself. And then in verse 6, the messengers return to him. He said, they say, we, we came to your brother Esau, and man, he's coming at you with 400 men. And so Jacob gets scared. He becomes greatly afraid and distressed. Fear grips his heart. He feared for his life, the lives of his family. He believes that Esau is coming to fight him. He believes that Esau is coming to take vengeance out. So he divides his family into two possessions and two groups and, and, and says, well, if, they, if, he, if he attacks one, the other will get away. I'll save half of us, right? Then he turns to God in prayer. And this is the first time in the Jacob story where he turns to God in prayer instead of his own strategy, right? We see that as we look with hindsight over his life. And in verses 9 through 12, you can read how he, in verse 9, he repeats the covenant promise that God made to him. In verse 10, he confesses his unworthiness and, and he confesses God's faithfulness. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For I left with only my staff and now I'm coming back to camps, right? So he's re reciting and recounting, much like the Christian needs to recite and recount even the gospel and God's grace to us in our lives daily. He's recounting this in, in the midst of prayer. And in other words, in verse, well, verse 11, he petitions God for deliverance, save me from Esau. And in verse 12, he reminds God of his promise to do, do him good. So in other words, what Jacob is saying, he's saying, God, I'm following you here. I'm entrusting myself completely to you. You've led me to this point. And so what Jacob is learning is he's learning that obedience to God isn't easy. Obedience to God sometimes is uncomfortable. Sometimes it puts us in a position where we can't trust in self, right? We have to trust in God. 
And so he's learning that it requires complete trust and complete dependence. Jacob knows that he cannot deliver himself from Esau. He knows that if there's any way for him to be delivered here, he's got to trust God. It's got to be God that does it. It's God that will bring him salvation in the midst of this great struggle. And so, friends, this is the same realization that we come to when we encounter the good news of the gospel of Christ. It's the same realization we come to when we're faced with the insurmountable debt of our sin before holy God, isn't it? Just as Jacob recognized his great need for salvation, we too must recognize our great need for salvation from our sin. Listen to how Paul writes about the gospel in Colossians chapter 2. You can follow along on the screen. Colossians 2.13. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How? Nailing it to the cross. What did Jesus do? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them. How did he triumph over them? When he rose from the grave. When he defeated death through resurrection. So just as Jacob came to a place of full dependence on God, unable to manufacture his own clever way to escape Esau's wrath, so we too, so we too, are called to cast ourselves upon the grace of God, recognizing that outside of Christ, we cannot escape God's wrath for our sin. We cannot earn God's salvation through our own meriting. It's only by the grace of God through Christ that we can be saved. And so we see in Jacob's confession in verse 10, God, I'm not worthy. That ought to be our confession before God, recognizing, God, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. This is the mark of true humility. 20 years has taken a long time for Jacob to arrive at this place. Obedience to God teaches the believer how to trust him in the face of fearful outcomes. You know, like Jacob, the experiences that we walk through in life, cancer, loss of a job, death of a loved one, hardships, persecution, suffering, all of these things have a humbling effect, don't they? All of these things cause us to cast our cares upon Christ not only do we see that Jacob has moved from a, a haughtiness to a humbleness, he's also moved from selfishness to selflessness or from being selfish to selfless. You know, I'm encouraged by what happens next in the text. Think about this. The gift taker, right, when he stole, he stole the blessing from Esau, his brother, and really swindled him out of his birthright, the gift taker now becomes the gift giver. Jacob sends a present to bless his brother, in verses 13 through 21, he organizes five droves of animals from his flock, from his herd, 550 animals that he wants to send as a gift to Esau. In fact, this is a, this is a gift and a tribute that would be even, wouldn't even be fitting for a king. I mean, it's more than what would be expected for a, a nation to give to a king who conquered them or in a treaty. And so he 
he spaces the droves apart. He sends his servants to deliver a humble message. And he gives the reasoning. He says that I may appease my brother, appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Now, this isn't just fear talking. This is a genuine desire for Jacob to have restoration in his relationship with his brother in the midst of this broken relationship. The word for appease is the word to make atonement. He's wanting to atone for his past sin, his way of offending his brother. And then this word for present, it's the word for offering. So he's seeking to atone for his sin by giving this offering to his brother. He's coming to him, and he's in, in, in chapter, I think it's 35 or 36, he calls it a great blessing. He, he gives Esau this blessing. It's reminiscent of the blessing that he stole from his brother. Now he is giving a blessing back. Jacob's trying to right the wrong that he did to Esau so many years ago. And, you know, some see Jacob's plan here as a continuation of his past ways. But if we can consider the wisdom of Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 16. Proverbs says, a, man gifts, a man's gifts make room for him and brings him before the great, right? There's wisdom in that. Or in Proverbs 19, 16. Many, many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts, right? There's some, there's some wisdom in what, what Jacob's doing. Not just is he returning the blessing, in a sense, not, not just as he giving a gift, but he is coming and he's saying that he wants to make atonement. And we see that Jacob's acting with wisdom as he, he's already placed his trust in God. One commentator says we can and should take all the precautions and make all the preparations we can in the face of conflict. But if we make it through, listen, it will be because of God's grace, right? One of the takeaways we have from Jacob's struggle here and his kind of the internal struggle, right? He hasn't even come face to face with Esau yet. But one of the takeaways that we have, that we see, is that Jacob seeks reconciliation in true gospel fashion. He seeks reconciliation in true gospel fashion. He returns a blessing that he robbed 20 years prior. If he's going to follow God, he must be reconciled to his brother. Yeah, this is a message that Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Listen to what Jesus told his disciples. So if, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, what do you do? Leave your gift there at the altar, right? And go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Jacob's story teaches us that we must deal with the sin problems of our past. You know, because if we try to outrun our sin problems from the past, we often find that we're running into greater problems in our present. It's just a reality. We can't sweep the past under a rug. I'm not suggesting that we have to dredge up things that we've already dealt with. What I'm suggesting is we can't sweep the past under a rug. We must deal with the sins of our past and seek reconciliation where we've wronged others. And so it's instructive for us to, to consider that Jacob doesn't have to tell Esau that he's returning. In fact, Jacob's path would have taken him nowhere through Esau's territory. But Jacob can't go back without confronting 
this sin, this great sin, this weight has been oppressing him for 20 years. He knows what he did to his brother was wrong. And he gets to a point where he can no longer handle it. And he's got to come clean. You know, more often than not, the most difficult struggles in life aren't the circumstances that we find ourselves in. They're not the circumstances surrounding us. The most challenging times in life come when we have to deal with the carnage, with the, uh, the carnage that trauma of broken relationships has brought into our lives. The work of reconciliation and healing broken relationships is a deep work that unearths depths of who we have become. You know, it's a journey that's worth traveling, though, because in the end, it's a journey that leads to freedom from bondage. It's a journey that, that frees us to walk in the light. Sometimes it's known bondage, sometimes it's unknown bondage, but, but in the midst of this journey, we discover, we discover more than we ever set out to discover. We learn that seeking reconciliation becomes the window to our own healing. This is one of the things that happens for Jacob. Perhaps it's too soft to say if we're going to be at peace with God, we must be at peace with one another. What we need to confess is being at peace with God demands being at peace with one another. Demands it. Friend, what about you? Have you made the journey from self-sufficiency to humility? Are you selfish or selfless in your dealings with others? Have you humbled yourself, sought reconciliation with a brother or sister who's offended you? Or whom you've offended? Have you turned to Christ for salvation? You know, these are all story, or these are all questions that the Jacob story prompts us to ask, aren't they? In the second scene, verses 22 through 32, the end of the chapter, we see that Jacob has gone from self-sufficiency to God-dependency. Self-sufficiency to God-dependency. Jacob brings his family across the, the fort of the Jabbok, and there he returns to be alone. The weight of his brother's approach has driven him to a point of solitude in the story. Maybe it's to reflect over his own sin and deceitful past that's brought him to this moment. Maybe it's to pray. Maybe it's to think about what's going to happen. Maybe it's a little bit of, of all three. But we find here Jacob in a wrestling match. A physical wrestling match, but also one that we understand metaphorically in our own lives. And in verse 24, it, it begins the pivotal encounter between Jacob and God. Jacob wrestles with the God-man intensely for six or seven hours through the night till early dawn. And even at this juncture of the story, my mind is drawn to the incarnation of Christ. Not, not that Jacob wrestles the pre-incarnate Christ here. That's not... What I'm saying, it's not the point, and it's not the case. But it, it draws me there because we see what God does is God accommodates himself, his presence, in such a way as to be gracious with Jacob in the midst of this wrestling encounter. He's gracious with Jacob. He doesn't just overpower him, right? He's gracious. It's taken 20 years even to get to this point, and we've seen God's grace in Jacob's life over and over again. The physical match points to a deeper reality for Jacob's entire life up to this point. From, from the womb, his life has been a struggle 
grasping the hill and wrestling with others. He was holding on to Esau's hill when Esau, his twin brother, came out of the womb first, right? Almost like he was trying to pull him back in so he could be the first one out. Not only did he wrestle with his brother, he wrestled with his father in deceiving him. Then, for the last 20 years, he's wrestled with his father-in-law. And now, on the eve of entering, returning to the land of promise, he finds himself engaged in a wrestling match with God. Over the last 20 years, Jacob's been bent, but he's not yet been broken. Then in the early morning, as dawn approaches, verse 25 tells us that this man that he's been wrestling with all night long, all of a sudden with a supernatural touch, touches Jacob, touches his hip, and and puts his hip out of socket, crippling him and, and zapping his strength, leaving Jacob broken. Friend, I think what we need to see here is after we are broken before God, we're never the same. And this is what happens for Jacob. He's never the same. Jacob, worn out and beaten after a long match, he clings to the God-man with every ounce of strength that he can muster in his worn-out body. And in verse 26, he says, I I won't let you go unless you bless me. And then in verse 27, the man asked Jacob, What's your name? And Jacob replied, Jacob. And in the midst of this exchange, one of the things we need to realize is that this exchange of names here, it's a a sign of, of Jacob confessing in this moment all of his character leading up to this point. As he says his name is Jacob, the the man says that he'll no longer be named Jacob. But now your name will be called Israel, which means he strives with God. So we find this kind of culminating snapshot of Jacob's lifelong journey in verse 28. His encounter with God has changed him. He was transformed and he was given a new name to show it. In the midst of all of this, his character was was changed and his strength and his clever wit was no longer the source of his power. Now his weakness, his limp and his strength being gone, now his weakness reveals a new power. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul is speaking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, when he says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. Listen, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Jacob's no longer Jacob. He's just grasped the heel of the one whom he wrestled with overnight. Now his name has been changed to Israel. Now he strives with God. Jacob names that place Peniel, and he says in verse 30, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. There's no doubt in verse 30 that Jacob understands he wrestled with God himself. He's no longer a man who strives in his own strength, but now he's a man who strives in God's strength. And this key, this is key to his future. It's key to his future in prevailing with God he must be in right relationship with God and you see how Jacob's story parallels your own Jacob had to come to the end of his self the end of his self-sufficiency the end of trusting his own ability before he was ready to enter fully into God's promise you know this sounds a lot like what Jesus tells his disciples 
Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, right? For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Just as it was for Jacob, so it must be for us in a relationship with God. We must come to the end of ourselves when we submit to the Lordship of Christ. Now the once ambitious Jacob, who prevailed through physical strength, who prevailed through self-will, who prevailed through his clever resourcefulness, has been transformed into the virtuous Israel who prevails through God in prayer and who prevails with God through humility and his dealing with people. This is the new Jacob. And the last point you have on your outline there this morning is leading with a limp. This is the new lot for Jacob. He's a different man. He's a transformed man. And this, this limp often is, to view, is viewed by the world as, as a weakness, but Jacob couldn't be more prepared and more strong now to lead as God would have him to lead. You know, the common view of a leader tends to produce kind of an image in, in our minds of someone who's strong and who's smart, who's good-looking, who's able to take risks, who gives off the, the image of being invincible and, and decisive in control. You know, this probably describes Saul, the first king of Israel, right? And perhaps it, it describes Jacob up to this point, might even add to that, resourceful and using any means necessary to get ahead of others. But all that changed when Jacob encountered God. Jacob's encounter with God marked him with a limp. It's an obvious sign of physical weakness for Jacob. But it's one that does him well because he begins leading with a limp for the rest of his life. One, one writer in his book, Leading with a Limp, Dan Allender, he shares a story. He shares the story of Jacob as an example of leading and he says, the story of Jacob exalts not the struggle, but the goodness of God as he blesses a conniving, undeserving man. He says, no, no matter how far off the mark we might be, we see in this account the promise that if we open ourselves up to meet God, we will not come out of the encounter the same. We'll walk a new path, and our gate will be unpredictable. We'll be walking in a new way, following God. You know, the two disciples of Jesus, James and John, their mother came up to Jesus and asked that her sons be granted the opportunity to sit on Jesus' right hand. And Jesus responded in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. He responded this way. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercised authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Perhaps Jesus himself gives us the greatest model of leading with a limp. Right? Think about Philippians chapter 2. He gave up heaven to come down to become incarnate 
Though he was the fullness of deity in bodily form, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself a servant, taking upon the form of a bondservant, and he humbled himself. The kind of leadership that the kingdom of God calls us to as Christians is servant leadership. Not selfishness, not haughtiness, but selflessness and humility. So this is our charge today, church. Jacob's journey of faith reminds us that God's providential hand is over our lives. He's always at work in our lives, exercising his grace toward us. He's always at work transforming us and reforming us that we might be used by him and for him. And in the midst of this journey that we walk towards spiritual maturity, there are times that are revealed where we have to confront our past as we wrestle over our future. But we see that when we walk with God, we walk in this new way. There's a new way forward as we encounter Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Let me ask you this morning. Have you encountered Jesus Christ, the risen Lord? See your Savior? Are you walking with him? Believer, does Jacob's story make you think about something in your life where the Lord has revealed to you a thing that maybe you need to confess before him? I want to encourage you this morning to do that. As you think about this wrestling match, maybe between Jacob and God, maybe there's something you think and feel as though maybe you have been wrestling with God over. And it's been a long wrestle. And now it's time for you to surrender, to follow God, to lay that thing before him. I want to encourage you this morning to do that, to respond as the Lord leads you. I'm going to close us in prayer. And you take time this morning where you're at to spend before the Lord in prayer. And this morning, if, if you want to know more about surrendering your life to Christ, I want to invite you to meet one of our elders over here on this side of the stage after the service by the cross. And we'd love to speak with you about what it means to surrender your life to Jesus and to follow him. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word, your goodness toward us. Lord, thank you that you're gracious with us, even in the midst of our deep struggles. And thank you, Lord, that you provide for us. I pray, God, that as we consider your word this morning and how it challenges us, that you would give us strength to respond to you by your Holy Spirit. Lead us, direct us, and guide us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.